Hey everybody, if you would do me a favor, share this, like it, and rate it. Now on to the show. Halito, welcome to Anumpa Nananoli. Your Choctaw storyteller is here to give you a little bit of a historical reminder. Today, February 8th, in 1887, the United States Congress passed the Dawes Act, or General Allotment Act which was part of federal Indian policy to forcibly assimilate natives into white society. Before the 1870s, the federal policy to colonize native lands involved tactics of violence, broken treaties, and the reservation system. When tribal nations proved resilient to these tactics, the latter half of the 19th century saw policies of forced assimilation by breaking up tribal reservation land. The Dawes Act asserted that the political recognition and treatment of tribal members as individuals rather than as members of their community. So to achieve this effect, the government offered tribal members personal allotments of land to farm for profit, isolating them from their community and stripping them of their traditional lifeways. According to the National Archives, The allotments were often unsuitable for farming, and young children often inherited allotments that they couldn't farm because they had been forced into the boarding school system. Also, tribes were often underpaid for the land allotment, and when tribal members did not accept the government requirements for purchase, their allotments were sold to non-native individuals. Once tribal lands were broken into smaller portions, it was easier to remove tribes from their homelands altogether. To complete this system of removal in 1952, the U.S. government enacted the Urban Relocation Program, which incentivized tribal members to move into cities and entirely away from their communities and traditional ways of life. And so a lot of them went from being impoverished from the reservation to impoverished in a city. It's almost like another trail of tears, Uh, a trail of tears where tribal members are broken away from their communities, from their traditions. And we see over time the effect that this has had. My grandmother, she left the reservation of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw in the early 60s to go to Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. There she met and married my grandfather. But because of the racism that she often encountered, because Choctaws were regarded as black people in the Jim Crow South, keep in mind my grandmother was born in the early 40s, so 40s, 50s, up into the early 60s, she lived there around her people and was largely isolated from the outside world, except for the fact that there are groups of Choctaw that had moved to uh, Henning, Tennessee, or I believe it's Lauderdale County, Tennessee, and there's a little annexation of of a place there uh, where there's a community center. And a, a good number have a community also in Memphis, Tennessee. So my grandmother's mother had moved to Memphis, Tennessee, thereabouts, and she actually worked at the Chukalisa Museum. Chukalisa means abandoned home, 
uh, and it's a preserved place uh, there at the University of Memphis, I believe it is. But anyway, so my grandmother met, married my grandfather, who was a white man, and of course they had children who were all uh, Choctaw and Caucasian mix. Well, because of the racism she encountered, she did not pass on the traditional ways, the language, the customs uh, to my father and his siblings, which leads me now to myself and my cousins. Uh, I have a cousin who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he, he and his wife, his wife is registered with the Choctaw Nation. That is, she's enrolled on the tribal rolls, but they are availing themselves of the opportunities that they can through the Choctaw Nation. But my cousin, unfortunately, like me, our immediate lineage goes to the Mississippi Band of Choctaws. So we are not on the tribal rolls because of blood quantum. So this is slowly how tradition and culture and language can become lost. Thankfully, there are efforts underway to preserve and to teach that. But even still, you know, things can still get lost along the way while preserving what we wish to preserve. One thing that I know that we used to have, our people used to have, uh, the Choctaw, that is, we had an eagle dance. And I've read about the eagle dance, but I don't believe it's, it's not practiced anymore. There's also the green corn dance. And a Choctaw elder that I know said that even when she was a little girl, it, it really wasn't practiced that much. So there have been some things that have over the years have just, we've just lost. But I think you could say that with most any culture. Uh, you know, my grandfather, he is of Scottish descent. And so being of Scottish descent, there are customs that probably when our ancestors came to the new world uh, that were lost as well. But there's a difference in things being lost and government mandating it so that you are forced to no longer be who you are. And thankfully, we're in a pretty good position today to where the forced assimilation isn't as prevalent as what it may have been back then. But it still exists in some form, and the, the waves of it are, are rather evident. So the Dawes Act brings me back to the Dawes roles. Now, Mr. Dawes was a member of Congress, and he wanted to do right by the Indian. He wanted to, he wanted to help them as much as, he, as much as he could. Senator Henry Dawes of Massachusetts, and you have not only the Dawes Act, but you also have the Dawes Rolls on which different natives were, were enrolled. And through that, the, the, the lineage through that, you know, is, is something that, uh, you know, you can trace. So like my great-great-grandfather, Simpson Tubby, I have found the page where he and his wife, Minnie, and their, their children are listed, the ones that had been born at that point. So the reason all this was done was because, you know, they had tried with removal west of the Mississippi, 
and were pretty successful to a large degree, but there still remain many natives in their ancestral lands. So they come up with the Dawes Act, and they come up with subsequent acts, such as that uh, urban act where you move them into cities and they assimilate that way. And why was that? Well, colonization for one. Uh, secondly, it has to do with the view of the native culture. So, you know, for me, I went to a, an international festival and it was really neat to go around to the different booths and learn about different cultures and countries. Uh, but back then, people didn't care about that. They wanted to impose their Western European thinking on everybody else. And when they looked at some of the things that we did, it just looked backwards. Uh, it looked savage, as they would say. And so it was regarded as the Indian problem. Well, I read a story recently, and I'll, I'll give this is an example of the Choctaw way and how colonization affected it. So I'm reading a story. Uh, it was written by a fellow named Gideon. I can't pronounce his name. Uh, L-I-N-C-E-C-U-N. Uh, so Gideon Lincecum, I guess. But anyway, in the 18 teens and 20s, he lived among the Choctaw in our ancestral land. And so he told the story of one Choctaw uh, who was the brother of one of the principal chiefs. Uh, Mushalatubi, which is my fifth great-grandfather, his brother, Atoba, was at a friend's house, a white friend, and it was late at night, they had been drinking, and Atoba was inspecting a handgun when the handgun discharged, killing the white man, who happened to be his friend. Everybody scattered at that point, there were lots of witnesses, and Gideon was trying to find Atoba. Needless to say, Atoba sent word that um, he had chosen his executor, and like on the next day at a certain time, uh, he was going to have his executor kill him. Because you see, in the Choctaw justice system, before the American legal justice system, if a life was taken, justice required a life. And so Otoba was going to give his life for the life he had taken, even though it was accident. Well, Gideon is trying to avoid him doing this. So he... He notifies Atobo and those that are with him when he finally catches up with him. He says, look, you can't do this. And Atobo was insisted on it. He's like, no, I have to. Uh, life demands life. It, the justice has to be carried out. And he said, but it was an accident. Atobo said, it doesn't matter. And he said, look, whoever you've chosen to execute you, they will be arrested for murder. So they work something out. But it was the belief of the Choctaw that, you know, justice had to be swift. Uh, but also, obviously, Atoba wasn't executed, but they did find him some years later drowned. Uh, don't know if that was retaliation. It, it never really said. But, you know, the Choctaw had their own justice system. And quite honestly, I would prefer it much to the American justice system because I think it's more just. But see, colonizers come, and they impose their laws in their ways, and they say it's justice, but oftentimes it really isn't. So those sorts of things are what they didn't want remaining. 
Also, the matrilineal system. I love telling people about this. You know, Choctaw society and a lot of indigenous tribes were matrilineal rather than patriarchal. So, like, your lineage as a Choctaw person was traced through your mother. Whereas when I was born, I took my father's last name, who took his father's last name, right? Comes through the, the, the pater, the father. So the matrilineal system uh, gave women a lot of power in, in the tribe. And so like, say you go, to, you go to a social. Well, the children would sit with the mother, who often sat with her clan or tribe, Ixa. Uh, the husband would go sit with his people. If the husband and wife ever separated, the husband would take his belongings and leave the house, and the wife would keep everything, the house and the children. And her brother, even if they were divorced or separated, the, the nearest male to the wife raised her children, more so than the father did. So, you know, you hear a lot about the patriarchy today, and you hear a lot about... Um, you know, such things as, as male dominance. But see, in Choctaw society, it wasn't that way, but the colonizers didn't like it. As a matter of fact, whenever, whenever groups of Choctaw would go to negotiate treaties, they took women with them. And this was very offensive to the Americans, to the Europeans, because they're like, they thought women belonged in the house. But the chiefs and the council really relied on the input of clan mothers, if you wanted to go to war, you would have to go and get the permission of the clan mothers. And if they did not consent, the nation didn't go to war. So women had a lot of power. So you see why they want natives to assimilate to white culture, right? Or to European culture. Very patriarchal in some senses. I think a lot of things have gotten better. But the very things that feminists, and that's a broad term, but the, the, let me put it this way, those who have fought for equal rights for women, women in Choctaw society already had that. I would say they may have even had an upper hand being a woman in the tribe. You know, the women had a large voice. And so people that feel oppressed by the patriarchy today, I'm like, well, you know, if you'd have just listened to the Choctaw or to some of the tribes, there's a lot of things that would be a lot better about our society and would have been better sooner. So you look at the Dawes Act, you look at the Dawes roles and all the other things that have happened, and I bring to you this reminder that the fight to maintain our culture, the fight to speak our language and practice our tradition and ways is something that still exists because they've tried it as far back as the early 19th century, actually as late as the, the late 18th century with the Treaty of Hopewell and onward. So they've always wanted to change us, but we have persevered. So, my Indian brethren, take heart. We're still here. We're still speaking our language. We're still practicing our culture and traditions despite the best effort of the United States government.